You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but to some, it is merely fiction. Join our conversations as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show or to contact us directly, visit us online at www.betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome, listener, to episode 52 of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. At this point, if you're a faithful listener, I don't even need to tell you what's about to happen. Two things are about to happen. First, I'm going to remind you that if you're not subscribed, go ahead and hit like on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, and whatever platform you're listening, if it's third party, whatever that positive interaction is, that helps us by increasing the spread of the podcast, and that helps you by always reminding you every Tuesday when there's a new episode. And the second thing that's about to happen is we're going to talk about Babel. Uh, do you remember, fellas, when we said that we had just one more episode of the of Babel left, and that was like three or four episodes ago? And yeah, yeah. And we kept saying just <clears throat> one more ever since then. So guess what's coming today? <laughs> one more. Or, but you know what? We're not even going to commit to saying just one more because we may we may have yet more to say about Babel. Are you saying? Are you suggesting we're going to babble on about Babel? <laughs> there was, we go. That's something. Uh, it's lame. That's what it is. Um, Matt never says lame things. It's usually me. So please leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> well, today's a little bit special though because. We are talking about Babel, but we are making a departure from Genesis 11. So if you were tired of uh, the first nine verses of Genesis uh, 11, we, we, we're going to go on a little field trip today. Yeah, so, and, right. and, and, and before we get on the bus, let's set this up a little bit, uh, because we've talked about a good bit about uh, Genesis 1 through 11 as a whole being a prologue of sorts for the entire story of the Bible. And we've seen recurring things. We've seen recurring earthly rebellion against God, you know, in the garden at the time of the flood and then now at the tower. But we've also seen recurring heavenly rebellion against God, right? Uh, the serpent in Eden, the sons of God coming down and mingling with the daughters of men. And here's this third major story. And yet when you look at Genesis 11, you don't get that sense of a heavenly rebellion against God. You don't get that spiritual beings component that we've seen elsewhere. And so it raises the question, why don't we have that in this, the last of those three major stories? Yeah, mm. yeah. Where are the usual suspects here? That's it. Yeah. The oh, great way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is good. That's the title of the episode. Boom. So Done. also, this is something that is relatively new in our lives of study. Um, I I really only discovered this a few years ago, and it was not from my own like personal study of digging through the Bible. I was actually looking uh, for some other stuff on some other issues and was exposed to this um, by a, a professor from Beeson Divinity School, uh, Gerald McDermott. He has a book called God's Rivals, and it talks about Deuteronomy 32. And it was through Gerald McDermott that I was exposed to Michael Heiser's writings on this. Of course, you've heard us use that name before. And uh, Michael Heiser has written extensively on the subject where McDermott has not written extensively, but he does have a very helpful book called God's Rivals. Um, but to just throw something in here, we've already seen in our podcast 
it is not beyond the scripture for later scripture to give specific details that earlier passages left out. For instance, we have already seen this in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter Mm. 2 gives details that are foreign to Genesis chapter 1. We we saw that, the two creation accounts. Um, For instance, we talked about one before the podcast uh, about the details of the of Abraham's life, and I'm not going to get into them now, we'll talk about them in future weeks, that the New Testament picks up that are not necessarily picked up in the Old Testament. And all three of us here believe in inspiration, and we believe that the Bible is what God wants it to be, and it's without error. So whenever the Bible gives details later about earlier stories, Nathan, as you were saying when we were hashing this out beforehand, we really need to pay attention. Yeah, so I I feel like we pay attention in general. I think one of the things that we're trying to contribute with this podcast, we're trying to read the Bible as a story, but we're also trying to say, hey, we're not the first ones to do so. How can we be informed by some of the voices that we typically ignore unintentionally? You know, how was this understood in early Jewish and Christian circles who read these texts before we did as sacred scripture? Um, but but when you have those interpretations of, of biblical passages occurring in the Bible itself. In the sacred text itself. Yeah. We've got to pay all the more attention to that, right? Correct. Because this is not, hey, well, this is, you know, this is what Josephus said. He's a Jewish historian. This is, you know, what Justin Martyr said or yeah. Irenaeus or no, 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 no. When Isaiah says stuff, it, when Moses yeah. says it, like you, it, it ups the ante. It, go, it goes from interesting to inspired. Correct. <laughs> when it's bit- oh, that's good. I like that. Do you know that Squidward meme where he's got his eyes closed and then you say something shocking and then his eyes are open? That's that's what you're that's what you're trying to communicate here. Eyes closed when Josephus says it. When Moses says it, eyes wide open. Oh, I'm that's ready. good. I like that. That's very helpful. <laughs> um, so all that to say this, we're going to talk about something about Genesis 11 that, you know, when I'm reading Genesis 11, I don't I don't see it at all. Um, But it's interesting not only what a later passage will say about Genesis 11, um, it's interesting the context in which it's communicated, right? Here's what I'd like to throw in. When I first was exposed to this, it was so foreign to me, it was weird. So we're going to take it slow here because I hope that you're going to see in these next two episodes, we have no desire to be novel. Um. And we're not just trying to, hey, we're just going to jump on this bandwagon and be novel here. Uh, The thing that I thought when I heard it is like, wait, that's too novel. But the thing that kept pulling me in is like, oh, like maybe this is how these ancient people thought about it. Uh, So we're going to try to go slow and process this together. So just uh, give us the benefit of the doubt that we are not trying to shove something novel down your throat. We're trying to help you understand what we've begun to understand. um, And we're, we're still on this journey together. Yeah. And, and there are, by the way, you know, a number of the things we talk about on the podcast, number one, we are not infallible. The word is infallible. We are not. Um, Some of the things that we talk about on the podcast to me 
have gone in my brain from possibility to probability. This is probably how that should be understood. That's this a good one way is to put it this one because it involves textual variation. Even though there's a de- decent argument uh, for what we're going to set forth, I'm, I'm not personally. I'm not putting this in the probable category, but it is interesting food for thought. Uh, well, the, I'm going di- to I'm going to disagree on that. It is probable for me because of how it connects the dots with the rest of the narrative. But that will be interesting that we uh, view that differently. But well, Gandalf, not, what were you going to say? Not, not not only us translations. Uh, it's it's interesting to see the divergence we're talking oh, yeah. about before the show. E- ESV, which is what we use for the podcast, uh, goes in the way again. I I lean in the same direction. I just lean there with less certainty. Yeah. Um, it goes one way where the Bible I preach from on Sunday, the CSB, goes with the other textual tradition. It's you know it's, it's a lot like what we saw in earlier parts of Genesis. Yeah. Well, I've I've got a lot of faith in our in our audience. If if you stuck with us to episode fifty two, you know you you know that uh, we're not we're not shy from the weird stuff, but we're also not saying it just just to be the new kid on the block and you know say shocking things. You know, we're trying to we're trying to speak from from what we believe the text is trying to say, the dots they're trying to connect. Well, and then also, uh, you 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 guys have kind of been hyping this up, and I've got to say, I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, what scripture that you guys are about to talk about okay. that brings details so from. let me help you with that. It actually starts in Deuteronomy 31. In Deuteronomy 31, verse number 30, there is something in here called the Song of Moses. Now, before I read it, I want to... Nathan, like, I know you know this. Uh, these things are throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, these songs... I think of like Miriam's song, Moses' song. I think New Testament, the song of Mary, you know, Mary's Magnificat. Uh, like, well, what are the are these are these psalms nestled into the text? Yeah, it's interesting. They kind of recap. It's kind of like a a, a genealogy in the sense that it's a means of recapping uh, essential parts of the story in a poetic form. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Uh, so it, it's interesting. In other words, it's not only interesting what you have in the songs; it's interesting where you find them. Right. Is that, does this that make is sense? at the end of Deuteronomy. Oh, that's it's very interesting. I yeah, think so like I think Mary's of, you know, song so and when I think of Revelation, you know, the song of um, Moses and the Lamb. Um, oh yeah, yeah, that's so, good. But anyway, go ahead, Matt. So this is the Song of Moses. If you want to find it in your Bible, it's Deuteronomy chapter thirty-one, verse thirty, and then that's. It immediately goes into Deuteronomy 32, but beginning in uh, verse 30 of chapter 31, then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Ooh, makes me think of Isaiah there. All right. May my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer 
his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Verse 7, here's where we're going to start to hone in. Remember the days of old. Now, let me pause here for just a second. Days of old, when is this being written? At the end of the Exodus, just before the conquest of Canaan. Most, yeah, and most time likely. out right there. Uh-huh. We have constantly, constantly talked about how they are living the Exodus while they're hearing Genesis. That's right. Now, and this so, is Deuteronomy. And now, yeah, and now they're at the cusp of entering into the promised land. What a perfect time to make a very big point by looking back to Genesis one more time before they go into the land. So if they are right now, Deuteronomy was written while they are living the Exodus and experienced. Deuteronomy should be thought of as experiencing uh, what they were in the time of the Exodus. What would the days of old refer to if this is the time of the Exodus? Well, something that came before Exodus, namely Genesis. So, and I would I would say there especially Genesis one through eleven, correct, correct. Especially Genesis one through eleven. So, and, rem- and, and and things in the text will point to that. Correct. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. I think of genealogies. Yes, there you go. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided, there's our word Gandalf, divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So that was the ESV from Deuteronomy 31 through Deuteronomy 32, verse number 9. So it's, right. interest, it, it's interesting if you pull up Deuteronomy 32 in other translations. So, for example, on Sundays I preach from the CSB. And for verse 8, it does not end with according to the number of the sons of God. It ends with... according to the number of the people or sons of Israel. And this is not because English translation committees are arbitrary. One of the, because sometimes you see, hey, this translation's not serious. It omits this, this, and this. It omits this, this, and this. Those are not English decisions. Those are usually Greek or Hebrew decisions. They're trying to uh, capture which one of the source text is most most faithful to the original. And that's a whole long list of considerations. Um, but the big point of divide on Deuteronomy 32.8 is whether you go with the Masoretic text or the Septuagint text. In the Septuagint text, but, it is... But it's it more is, than that. It's also Dead Sea Scrolls. The oldest documents we have, which are Dead Sea Scrolls, in Hebrew on this text, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, yeah, because uh, in other words, Masoretic text essentially becomes the critical edition of, you know, of the uh, biblical Hebrew. Um, and so you have 
The, the, the Septuagint clearly goes with sons of God. The Masoretic text goes with sons of Israel. But as Matt was just saying, it gets a little bit more complex because there is not a uniform tradition for the Hebrew text. And you have, and it's even acknowledged in the critical edition of the Hebrew Bible, that you have Hebrew sources, uh, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, that go with the sons of God reading. And that's a... That, that's a huge difference in interpretation between Correct. sons of Israel and sons of God. That's like Correct. major. Correct. That there's a big one because what will go on to be, again, let me set this up because I, I don't know if it's landing or not. Israel is about to go into a land that, that God is giving them as their inheritance. They're on the cusp of the promised land, Deuteronomy 32. And what's going to happen? They're going to go into a land that God has given them they're going to encounter many peoples who worship many gods. And at the end of that, God's going to give it to his people as their inheritance. So we have to answer two questions. Not only where did all these peoples come from, but where did all these gods come from? Right. And mm. and again, they're making reference to explain this. They're going back to Genesis 1 through 11. And we only have one story in Genesis 1 through 11 where such a division occurs. And it's the story of the Tower of Babel. Deuteronomy 32 is drawing, uh, building a bridge, not a tower. Um, building a bridge, not a tower, to the Tower of Babel, I think. So if we're just rolling along, we'll, we'll continue to have this conversation about the differences here. But if we're just rolling along with the ESV, Gandalf, as you read that, when you read verses 7 through 9, what if you know what sons of God means, because we've talked about it previously, based on what you've learned, look at verse 7 through 9 there. What do you think mm. this story is saying? It sounds to me, if we're going with reading it as sons of God, um, it sounds to me like when God is scattering the people after Babel, he's not just cutting up arbitrary borders and peoples, but it sounds like he's giving them over to supernatural beings. Right. If the sons of God are these spiritual beings, it sounds like he is appointing people to the leadership of these spiritual beings. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting. So one, one point um, uh, this is uh, Daniel Dennett. He's one of the big figures of the new atheism. And I heard him say one time in a debate, he says, we are all atheists with regard to o Odin and Thor and Zeus and Hercules. Why are you so offended that I'm adding one more God to the mix? But it does beg the question, why wasn't atheism the default of any of the peoples of antiquity? <laughs> you know, why, why do they all have uh, supernatural beings? Why do they all have a, a developed mythological structure. And, and that's before you engage the question, you know, at, at theology and history of what is true, just, just at a rote level, why do they all default to this? Um, and to me, the story, man, it speaks into that space. We've talked about the sons of God is only used, the language of sons of God. It's not used a lot in the Old Testament, but it is used exclusively for supernatural beings. And so if that is the reading of the text, and, and to Matt's point, there is good reason to go with that as the reading of the text. Why would this be an exception? Uh, it it, it s seems to suggest exactly what um, 
uh, Gandalf said that when God divided the nations, he divided them under um, under the the leadership or the influence of uh, lesser spiritual beings. So uh, and that that will affect a lot of the Old Testament story. It'll keep coming up. So um, you heard at the beginning how uh, Nathan and I lean on this. I lean into this a little more than Nathan does. Uh, no, no, I, I, I go with you. I just dude, I, I don't I understand. Know we don't I have understand. a degree of. I understand. I, I don't know that we have an overwhelming case. Does that make sense? A decent right. case, right? So here, what here's what I'm going with here is that my training in seminary, I am not a big biblical languages guy. I, I had biblical languages in seminary, um, but I'm not a big biblical language scholar like Nathan is. And so my I use the languages uh, Nathan uh, use, uses in them fluently. They, they they're just it's just he you you are on a, just a completely different level th than me when it comes to biblical language. So one of the things I, that I any, typically any, do any, any five year old in Tel Aviv can do better Hebrew than I can. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but one of the things is for me because my usage of the language is not like a biblical language scholar. Is that I lean in heavily to thought development in English. I try to be a careful reader. You are such a good reader. Of English. And so when I look at thought development in Deuteronomy 32, when he says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations, when we see nations here, we should think table of nations, Genesis 10. Yeah. So I think, okay, where have I read about the division of the nations? That's Genesis 10. Their inheritance, when he divided, that word divided is actually found when it talks about, and God divided the earth in the days of Peleg. We, we looked at that a few weeks ago. Peleg, whose um, name means division. His name uh, means division. When he and, and, go ahead. Oh, and I even wonder if going back a few verses, if they know where, if they know this is going to Genesis ten and eleven, uh, table of nations in Babel, which is really one chapter, right? Sure. Um, I mean, it's two chapters in the Bible, but it's one chapter in terms of the story, uh, the saga. Um, what an interesting thing. How do they refer to God? As their rock, mm, that is good. <laughs> you know the rock, the rock as opposed to the tower, the unbuilt, unhewn thing versus the cut stone that we're talking about. Mm. Uh, to, I wonder. Oh, I wonder good. if uh, you know, and mentioning God's uh, righteousness and faithfulness as opposed to the uh, tyrannical power that we talked about um, with Nimrod. Um, so I mean, there, there, there is a lot to tie it together. Sure. Um, so. As I, okay, as I can, I, okay, I'll go. I'll go to probable. This okay. is me <laughs> I'm not even, dude. I'm not criticizing you. I'm, I'm saying we're both being true to form. We're both being true to form. By the way, when the pandemic broke out and uh, we were all listening to all the experts explain everything online, uh, you always knew when the expert was talking. When the expert said, "Okay, this is what we know." 
about medicine. However, this is what it seems to be, and this is what we think may be happening. Everyone who spoke in absolutes was a politician. Or a Sith. <laughs> That's right. You know an expert <laughs> is speaking when they do not speak in absolutes on, on very um, pre- precise matters such as these. But if I'm have, reading have this... Ever, uh, go ahead. So Matt, have what ever, office are you running for? No, 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 no. no. I'm, I'm not speaking in absolutes. I'm still I'm probable kidding. here. I'm, I'm, I'm still kidding. probable yeah. here. Ha, ha, have you ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, It's the idea that, that the more expertise you have on a subject, the less confident you are in, in what, in your you know, attempts to nail down the truth. But people who have no expertise at all will say things ultra confidently. Um, Dude, I watched a, the YouTube exactly video on this. I'm good. Uh, yeah, that's so. right. The, uh, it's, a, uh, in, uh, his recent book, Adam, Adam Grant is the, uh, he calls himself an organizational psychologist, but his recent book, Think Again, he does this thing on the Dunning-Kruger effect, and uh, he asks a series of questions, and you recognize some of them as baiting questions, right? And so you're right. like, ah, that doesn't really have an answer. Um, and then when he's done asking the questions, because he's he's not only explaining the point, he's demonstrating the point. What you don't realize while he's asking the questions is that they were all baiting questions, and he, he's showing you, in other words, it's not that just that you can see it at work in other people. You can't see it at work in yourself because you fell into the same trap on a different <laughs> issue. Um, well, so I want to I end this little portion of it here by not tying a bow on it because it's still at the end of the day. We don't know this for sure, uh, which oh, I'll, I'll say this and then I want to say what I was about to say there. But. The greatest evidence for me that this is the interpretation is that if you continue reading in verse 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided, so I think, all right, nations, Genesis 10, divided Peleg, which is Babel, divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So, my question is, if this is sons of Israel, and I'm just speaking rhetorically here because I'm going to answer my own question. Um, How do you fix that number at the yes. time? What number was available at that time? First of all, how many sons of God were there? Well, it's interesting. There's a reason that pseudepigraphal work of Enoch later talks about the 70 sons of God. Um, But there were 70 grandsons of Noah in Genesis 10. There were only 12 sons of Israel. So there's a math problem here. But it's also the narrative flow here. He fixed the borders of the peoples, Genesis 10 and 11, according to the number of the sons of God, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted and his allotted heritage. So Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham and ultimately Israel, Jacob. It's it's also it's a narrative and and hand in hand. And how interesting how hand in hand with his calling is a territorial appointment. Here's the land I'm going to give you. Here's the land I'm giving you, meaning here's the land that has just been distributed to 
them. And how many sons of God were there? Well, how many sons of Noah were there? That was that would have been 70, the grandsons there. So it's to me, it fits the correspondence the flow. is interesting. Yeah. It fits the flow. The days of old, when there were the division of the nations, divided at Babel, land was given to them, and then God chose a specific one for himself and then gave them a land. If you, yeah, so if you this put is the, the sons uh, of Israel in verse 8, it, it seems out of order because there was no Israel during that time. Now, God could have just gone ahead and done that if he wanted to. Um, um, you know, this reminds me of the old uh, sermon point or sermon illustration uh, where a guy stumbles across, uh, you know, some string of truth or some key truth and a demon whispers in the ear of Satan, hey, aren't you... Uh, aren't you worried that he's going to take that and stumble onto the truth? And he said, no, 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 I'll just have him make a religion out of this partial truth. Um, uh, It's interesting to the, to the point we've kind of unfolded here and we've, we've certainly got more to say in the next episode. Um, But when you see some of the church fathers talk about this, you see people like Justin Martyr uh, and Clement wrestling with uh, partial truths in the other nations and religions of the world. And for them, it seems to come back, especially for Justin Martyr, it seems to come back to this time. So um, what's interesting to me, and because I, I think this is the wheelhouse that they're operating with, is I think of the story of Jephthah. That's funny. Nathan, you and I were talking about Jephthah the other day for a totally different reason. Yeah, Judges 11. So Jephthah is having a conversation with the Moabite leader in battle. And he is taking issue with the Moabite king wanting to take possession of the land of Israel. So in verse 23, it says this, So the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Meaning, our God gave us this land. But listen to what he says. Verse 24, will not you possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess and all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. It's interesting to me here in Judges that Jephthah looks at the Moabite king and says, listen, you just need to take the land that your God, Chemosh, gave to you. Like, that is a foreign thing to most evangelical readers of the Bible, the fact that there could be other little g gods with land. Where is that coming from? I'm saying it's coming from Deuteronomy 32. Yeah, and, we, and we've talked about the sons of God uh, passages. This, by the way, gives explanation to some of the sons of God uh, passages that we talked about about why... Um, God, you know, the passage where God is in the council of the Elohim, the lowercase gods, pronouncing judgment over them. What would it, what would he be judging them for? Rebellion up to and including stewardship of the nations. You know, again, going back to Ju- Justin Martyr says, uh, and and he's talking about those fallen angels or spiritual beings who masquerade or live as little g gods, and it says that afterwards they subdued the human race to themselves 
partly by magical writings and partly by fears and punishments they occasioned, and partly by teaching them to offer sacrifice and incense and libations. In other words, the division of the nations also becomes the division of religion. But there's not just an earthly component to that. There's a heavenly component as well, potentially. Well, this I, I wasn't aware of any of this. I didn't even realize that um, Deuteronomy had had this uh, in thirty two had this account of uh, stuff that happened in Babel. So that's really interesting. And unfortunately, as invested as I am right now, we are out of time. However, we do have more to say about uh, the story in the city of Babel. So, uh, so we're not going to say that, hey, we've just got two more episodes on this because I have no idea how long it's going to take us. We're, we're done with we're done with trying to put a, put it. We will talk until there's nothing more to say. Nobody so how about puts, that? Nobody puts Babel in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but listener, if you want to inherit the next episode of the mm. podcast, please, I urge you, hit like, hit subscribe, whatever that is listening, whatever platform you're listening to. Every Tuesday, new episode, and we will see you here when that new episode comes out. Until then, have a good one. See you next time. Shalom. Okay, well, I'm, I, I'm comfortable with anything except for uh, Mark of the Beast. <laughs>